dinner was not at all what the disciples had expected. They had been sent to the nicer part of town, the part that had larger rooms, to find an upper room where they could celebrate the Passover meal together. And this was a time for them to sit together and remember, participate in the story as God's chosen people, those who had been saved when the blood of a lamb poured in a basin was painted over doorposts, marking them as saved. This was a chance for a nice celebration. All indications were that they would be treated, hosted at this dinner, that they would be honored guests. But what happened is not how they expected to be treated. And they had no idea of the events of the next 24 hours that this one meal would usher in to motion. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew where he came from, that he came from the Father. He knew that his hour had come to return. Jesus also knew who he was. He knew that the Father had put everything under his power. And so, and so, Scripture says, knowing all of that, and so, because of his certainty and his identity, his authority, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. This was not at all what the disciples expected. That night in the upper room, Jesus stepped into the role of servant. He fetched water. That's what servants do. That's what the same actions that had been taken at his first miracle at Cana when he had asked the servants to bring him water. He is taking on the role of the lowliest of servants, something not even a a Jewish servant would do. You would have to find someone else. And so he, he fetched water, and he took it, and he poured it into a basin. And taking up that basin, he lowered himself to the floor by their feet. Now, if anyone had been paying attention, Jesus had been lowering himself all along, emptying himself. The act of incarnation, please. That's the biggest lowering the world has ever witnessed. He lowered himself from the status of God to take on the form of a man, and now as a man to take on the form of a servant, and then tomorrow he lowered himself to take up a cross. Jesus lowered himself all the way to the floor where their feet were. That towel wrapped around his waist, he he washed feet, and then he used it way down by their feet to wipe them clean. This was not at all what the disciples expected that night. Jesus had a title, many titles. You take whole classes to learn about them. God most high in all of his titles put aside the titles and took up the towel and then took up a cross. I can imagine that the silence was deafening in that room. Who would know what to say? 
when their own rabbi, their teacher, lowered himself to their feet. All the clatter of that dinner probably stopped when they realized what he was doing as he made his way all the way around the table to each of them. He stopped and knelt on the floor, and using the towel, he wiped their dirty feet clean. And he didn't skip a single one of them. Not the ones arguing about who was greatest, not the one who would deny him, not the one who would betray him. He didn't skip a single one. And when he had finished, he changed back into his clothes, took up his place at the table. That Thursday night, the disciples never expected what happened. Friday morning, things did not happen as Pilate expected. I mean, he always expected some chaos and mayhem during this Passover festival. It was to be expected with all these crowds of strangers gathered, the heightened chances of political, religious uprisings. There was always some rabble-rouser among the Jews, right? There was always the chief priest manipulating him. There was always Herod trying to ignore him. I'm sure he wished he was relaxing at his palace by the Mediterranean, kicking back. But... It was probably better that he was here. He could always count on some crazy religious riot starting during this week, and he needed to be here to be the one to bring justice. And now, here he was. And here came the religious leaders, just like he thought, dragging before them someone they had accused. Here he was, the accused, bound and beaten dragged before Pilate, and and Pilate thought he knew what to expect. He had done this before, right? But when Pilate stared down at this man, it was not at all what he expected. There was something different. This supposed insurgent, he wasn't what Pilate expected. He didn't look or act like a criminal. The priests were out there shouting their accusations. This man broke their Sabbath. This man said he was going to tear down their temple. This man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Well, that got Pilate's attention. Maybe here, finally, was an accusation worthy of his role and judgment. No one could claim to be king, right? Here's what he was there for. So he got as close to the prisoner as he dared looked him in the eye, and asked him the accusing question, Are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And that's when he was surprised again. There's no defensive posture, no sneer, no cursing, no shouting. This this gentle man before him with kind eyes looked straight back into his eyes, and simply responded, you have said so. You have said so. Well, that was not what Pilate expected. Pilate's mind reeled. What did he do now? He saw such calm assurance in this man's eyes. There was a certainty there of identity and position and purpose and And maybe something else in those eyes. What was it? An invitation? It almost felt like this man was inviting him to call him king. 
to enter into a different kind of servanthood, to be a subject in a whole other kingdom. And Pilate was not used to being subject. That made him uncomfortable. He was the one in power here. So why didn't he feel like it? Meanwhile, trying to figure things out, he went up and sat on his judgment seat, trying to think things through. What would he do? And a a message arrived from his wife. Have nothing to do with this innocent man, she said. I dreamt about him. And, And that dream has been troubling me. I'm suffering under it all day. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. Well, he tried. He certainly tried to get out of it. He tried to bargain with the crowd. He tried to give them Barabbas, a terrible criminal instead. He tried to pawn him off to Herod. He tried all his best political maneuvering and problem solving. Pilate needed a way out. He needed one that looked like he wasn't the one making a decision. So he made a decision to look like he wasn't making a decision. Pilate called for some water. Most likely a servant brought it, right? I mean, that's what servants do. They fetch water. And he called for a basin. And that water brought before him into this basin. This basin couldn't have looked more different than the one the night before, right? Probably a simple, plain one the night before. What kind of basin is brought before Pilate? Is it intricately decorated? Is it beautifully shaped? I mean, it would be a piece to show off. He had this water brought, and instead of being lowered, he had it placed high where everyone could see. This was a spectacle, not not a practical, loving gesture as it was the night before. There in front of the crowd, Pilate remembered the words of his wife, have nothing more to do with this innocent man. But as he came to the water and washed his hands in it, the words that came out from him was, I am innocent of his blood. The guilt is on you. I am done. I have said those words or thought them more times than I would like to admit in ministry, in life, especially in the last couple of years. I'm done. I'm done. Who can handle this? I have wanted to back away from more crowds, more decisions, more pressure, and just say, I am done. Have you felt it? That kind of pressure? There's something about the overwhelming demands of the world that will send you to a basin. But once you get there, you have to decide which one is it. Which basin am I standing in front of? I'll never forget um, when I was serving as a pastor in local church ministry, one of the churches that I served was at a place where lots of people would come through down on their luck asking for help from the church. They often saw the church as a place to go. And the church secretary was often the first person who met them, and we we had all of these wonderful things in place that she could do to help. We had a policy that we didn't give out cash. 
But if somebody needed groceries, we had a place to get groceries. Somebody was about to be evicted or their light bill uh, was coming due and their electricity was going to be turned off. We, we had a means of helping them with that, but boy, that always ran out before the end of the month and it was replenished. And often if that secretary sitting at the front, if, if she didn't quite know what to do, had no more resources, or, or if this seemed like more of a spiritual crisis where someone was in need of counseling and prayer, she would come back and, and grab one of us, one of the pastors, to come up and help. I remember her catching me almost on my way out the door one day. I was headed home, and she found me and said, there's a, a young man up front. He needs help, and he needs prayer. There was always some elaborate story of need, so I sat and listened to this young man's story. He he was from out of town. He had been driving through, and his car broke down. He was on his way, he said, to his father's funeral. It was in another state, and he just had to make it. He had to get there to be with family, but he had no resources, no car, no way of getting out of this place, no place to stay, and no money. And something about that story just tugged at my heart. So I just got into action. I started calling people. I found out where the, the bus station was, what time the bus would leave to get him where he was going, how much a ticket was. I found somebody that could pay for that, somebody to give him a ride, somebody to give him a place to wait and a meal, somebody to sit with him. And I, I came back and shared with him all these wonderful things that I, I, <laughs> that I had held up my acts of service to him. And it, it turned out that what he really wanted was cash. And if this church wouldn't give it to him, well, there's another one down the road. So after a quick prayer and a trip out the door, we never saw him again. I can't even tell you what I was feeling. I felt, I don't know, like I had been taken for a ride somewhere. I felt silly that I had done all the things I thought I should do. And I turned around to walk back into the offices, and there stood that church secretary. She had more years at that desk than I had in college, seminary, and ministry combined. Let me just tell you. <laughs> and I just saw that look in her eyes, and I knew I'd better stop and get some wisdom. She just shook her head a little bit at me. I said, what are you thinking? She said, you pastors. <laughs> When I call y'all up here to help someone, she said, it's like y'all either try to be their savior or you just wash your hands of them. And it stopped me in my tracks. What had I been doing? What was I thinking? What role was I in at that moment? She was right. Everyone who was desperate for help, I took one of two directions. I was either the savior or I had nothing. I walked away from that conversation dazed, and it affected how I saw each person that came into that office from then on. It's like you either try to be their savior or you wash their hands of them. I am not Jesus in this story. Jesus saves, not me. Also, I don't want to be Pilate. I don't want to be done with it, right? Right? just because I can't fix it all. How many things in the world 
have weighed on you so much that that compassion fatigue, that moment where you just say, I can't do anything, I'm done. I wash my hands, clearly, clearly I'm innocent. It's too much for one person to take on. Be the savior or wash your hands of it. Are those the options here? Where do I fit at these two basins? This is the choice. And we get here again and again between these two basins. They were probably filled within 18 hours of each other. And what those two men chose to do at those basins, it was, it was world-shaking, right? What Jesus did changed the world and is still changing us. What Pilate did, although he said he didn't make the decision, the very indecision, it says, made the decision. One of these basins was filled up in private, in a closed room, among intimate friends. The culmination of relationships that had taken years to build. And the other one was filled in front of a crowd for show, high and lifted up. I think Pilate reminds me of my temptation that it's what the crowd sees that matters. And what Jesus is showing us is that it's what is done in small rooms that matters. Not the influencers, not the platform, not the image that we have to preserve at all costs, the small rooms. I mean, Jesus loved the crowds, didn't he? His last night, where did he chose to go? Where did he invest that last bit of time? Ministry that is done by investing deeply in a few people's lives changes the world. One of these basins was self-serve. One of them was used to serve others. All of those sayings of Jesus, the ones that we quote but kind of swallow when we do, the last will be first. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. Whoever is the servant is the greatest among them. I mean, that's all summed up in this one basin. One of these was used by a man screaming his innocence in front of other people. Methink thou dost protest too much. One was used by the only innocent man that really ever lived, right? And yet, every accusation he didn't even respond. He didn't need to defend himself because it wasn't the crowd's opinion or Pilate's that mattered. Jesus also never lifted a finger to point at anyone around that table, not those arguing about being greatest, not the one who would betray, not the one who would deny. He made his way all the way around, the innocent man washing the feet of the guilty, Jesus knew that shame is a motivating force. It does move people, but not in the right direction. Not to clean hearts, anyway. Shame isolates us, separates us. Jesus didn't use it. He had every opportunity. He knew that loving humility had a better chance of changing hearts and changing the world than shaming ever could. And he had only one posture for every single person at that table. One man put down a title and picked up a towel. 
And the other man picked up a title and waved it around. It was the only thing he had, really, an empty title. And when it was all finished, Pilate, when he was done, there was only one person in the crowd who had been washed, and it was him. And when Jesus was done, everyone in the room had been washed except him. No one in that room washed Jesus' feet. How did it end up working out for Pilate? I mean, clearly image was important. Position, making sure the crowd thought highly of him. His desire to exit stage right and bow out looking clean so that posterity would remember him well. Well, we remember him, don't we? We remember him. Every time the Apostles' Creed is spoken throughout history, there are only two human names that are spoken besides Jesus. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. There's his legacy. We remember him. That's his name written for us in the history books. Try to save your life, Jesus says, and you will lose it. But offer it up. And God will take you up. Try to save your reputation. Try to build your platform. Lift your basin way up high and see where it gets you. But come to this one, and Jesus is waiting. Jesus isn't up on the platform. He is down on the floor. He's washing feet. And his basin is still with us, did you know? It's still here. It's still offered, and it is still making its way around the table. Every time we come, every time we come, he says, let me wash you. His basin's still here. Amen.